So I said, I'm going to do a review, plan to next week. Who knows what I'll end up doing, but that's my plan right now. Uh, one thing that I'll recall in the review, and I've said it several times, in Leviticus 17 through 26, technically, so we're going to kill off at 26. Some Bible scholars take it through 27 because there's only one more chapter. You might as well grab that chapter too. But the theologians technically calling chapter 17 through 26 the holiness code. And here in these chapters, there have been really a, a guide from the Lord how they might live in their everyday lives, that they might be holy. But when we get to chapter 26, I'll make a little joke for you. Um, I invented it, so if it's not good, it's all me. But chapter 26 is a very iffy chapter. That's because we'll find that the word if is repeated nine times in this chapter. And so this is really a conditional issue that God is putting on the children of Israel. When he says, if, if you do this, or if you do not do this, he's really telling them that you have a choice. And if you do this, this is what I'll do for you. But if you do not do this, this is what will happen to you and your nation and your people. And so it's a reminder of God's covenant relationship with the children of Israel, of what God would do for them if they kept God's covenant, walked in obedience to his word, but also if they did not do what God commanded them to do. And we find these things being laid out for us here in Leviticus chapter 26. Key verses, two verses that I chose for the key verses of chapter 26, verses 44 and 45, it says, Yet for all that... When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So the Lord is going to go through really... Uh, talking what will happen to Israel in their disobedience. And we see it played out in First uh, and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, and some of the other chapters in the Old Testament, other books in the Old Testament as well. But we see this played out historically in uh, First and as I said, First and Second. Um, we could even tie it back to First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. We see it played out historically in Isaiah and Jeremiah about the devastation that ultimately comes upon the people. But even in their disobedience, even when they're taken into captivity, God does not forsake them. He remembers His covenant, and He still works. He said that they, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. This is what God does. He gives way for people to return and to repentance to him. So this chapter breaks down in uh, five areas. I normally don't do this, but I put five bullet points. Each of these bullet points will become a chapter head. Uh, In chapter 26, we find the first bullet point in verses 1 and 2, a reminder of God's covenant with Israel. In verses 3 through 13, If Israel obeys 
their covenant with God. 14 through 39, if Israel breaks their covenant with God. 40 and 43, actually, I ended up tying this together. I didn't do it in my bullet points here, but 40 through 46, if Israel repents and turns back to God, I did have a separate bullet point. God will always leave a remnant in Israel, but I'd already addressed it up to this point. So I kind of lost that last point in my notes, but it still appears in my bullet points here. So the four bullet points that we're going to work off of tonight are four points. A reminder of God's covenant with Israel, one and two. If Israel obeys their covenant with God, three through 13. If Israel breaks their covenant with God, 14 through 39. If Israel repents and turns back to God, 40 through 46. So we begin. In verses 1 and 2, it says, You shall not make idols for yourself, neither a carved image or a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So we begin with a reminder of God's covenant with Israel. Specifically, he deals with three specific things. First, he reminds them of the second commandment that they were to have no carved images. He said, you shall not make idols for yourself. No carved images, no sacred pillars. You shall not set up in a gravestone or bow down to it. I am the Lord your God. And this comes, I'm taking this from Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10. And we'll find, we've already had the Ten Commandments listed for us in Exodus chapter 20. But did you know it's also found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5? So I'm just taking the uh, second commandment of the Ten Commandments from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I am the Lord your God. Am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, and sh but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So we begin with a reminder from God to Israel to keep three specific things. The first the second commandment, no carved images. The second, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath. Again, Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. God had a lot to say about the Sabbath day in the Ten Commandments. In our minds, we list out the Ten Commandments and we say, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And that's correct. But he went on to say in Deuteronomy 5, I already said, observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy. In verse 12, going down through 15, as the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your sons, nor your daughters, nor your male servants, nor your female servants, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, or your strangers who's within your gates, that 
your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. So the second reminder, keep the Sabbath day. They're going to blow it on this one. We'll see it uh, later on in this chapter. And third, he says, revere my sanctuary. And so the sanctuary, the tabernacle in the time of the Exodus and initially as the children of Israel went into the promised land until Solomon, until the temple was built during the reign of Solomon, God dwelt with Israel in the midst of their camp when they were in the wilderness uh, in the midst, amid uh, their nation when they were in Israel, but either in the sanctuary or in the temple. This was the place where Israel met with God. Leviticus 19.30, you shall keep my Sabbaths, revere my sanctuary. He says the same thing again earlier in this book. I am the Lord. So whether talking about the tabernacle or the temple, the sanctuary refers to the designated place where God met with Israel or where Israel could come and meet with God. And this place was to be revered by the people. I think we've lost that in our culture here. I know we don't have tabernacles and temples in the Christian churches, but we have churches and church buildings that almost guarantee you that every church building where people come together and worship that there has been some dedication service to the Lord for the place uh, where the people are gathering together to worship. And so the place should be revered because it's been dedicated to God. And therefore, we should concern ourselves how we conduct ourselves in the house of God. So... Psalm 89, 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, to be held in reverence by all those around him. Before we get into the blessings and the cursings that are found in verses 3 through 39, and most of that is talking about the cursings, we must remember that these promises regarding Israel's obedience and God's blessing was because they had a covenant relationship with God. Conversely, his judgment against Israel, if they failed to obey the commands of the Lord to keep his judgments and his statutes, well, the judgment that followed was also because they had come into a covenant relationship with God. Though God could do all these things for us, either as individuals or as a nation here in the United States. We are not built on a covenant relationship with God as Israel was. So God could conduct himself for our nation just as written in this chapter, but we have no such covenant with God. But with that being said, I do believe that the U.S. was founded on Judeo-Christian values and principles that God has greatly blessed our nation. And as I was praying earlier, that if God has blessed our nation in times past because of our strong Christian heritage, as our nation walks away from that heritage, could he not also bring judgment upon this nation? 
a nation that has largely now began to abandon that heritage of faith, that they might look to the ways of this world. I think he could, and I think he is. So this is to Israel, but perhaps we should look at it in the lenses of being a people that have a strong Christian heritage, but now we live in a time when people are trying to strip away that heritage and actually cause the heroes of our country to be uh, looked down upon and belittled, and ultimately they want the heroes of our nation to be forgotten because they want God to be forgotten in our nation as well. So God gave these conditional promise. It begins in verse 3. If Israel obeys God, it goes through verse 13. But the condition is this, found in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them. So three things that here in verses 3 through 13, we find that God will talk about Israel's provision, their peace, and his presence in their land. But it all hinged off Israel's faithfulness to walk, keep, and perform God's statutes and covenants or commandments. So the Hebrew word for walk, figuratively, it speaks about a way of life. The Hebrew word translated as keep, it means, I like this one, to hedge about, kind of put a guard up or to put a fence around you to protect And then the Hebrew word translated as perform, it's actually a verb meaning to do, to make, to accomplish, to complete. And so it speaks about someone performing an activity that has a distinct purpose in mind, kind of a moral obligation. And in this, God is asking his people to walk in his statutes, to keep his commandments, and to perform them. And so they are to become a very part of their lives. And we can say the same for us, that the word of God should so invade our hearts that it changes the way we conduct ourselves in this life, that we too as Christians should desire to walk in the ways of the Lord, to keep his commandments and perform them or to do them as we go about in this life. Psalm 81, 10 through 12 says, the Lord speaking, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsel. So we have a choice of how we are going to conduct ourselves. God says, open wide and let me fill fill your mouth. The blessings that he desired for his people. But they had a stubborn heart. They would desire to walk in their own ways, their own counsel. So, obedience. First, we find the three things that I said that God promised for them would be provision, peace, and his presence. 
And so we find in verses 4 and 5 that obedience leads to God's provision. Then I will give you rain in its season. Land shall yield its produce. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of the harvest, and the vintage shall last till the time of the sowing. And you shall eat bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. So verses 4 and 5, God promises them if Israel walks, keeps, and performs God's statutes and commandments, he will give them fruitful seasons of sowing and harvesting. And their harvest will be so abundant that their produce will last them until the next harvest. At one point, they'll say that uh, it will say in here, we'll get to it, that they'll actually have to clean the barns out of the old produce to make room for the new produce. So God is saying that I will bring abundance to your nation. And, and to dwell in safety, well, in biblical times, often the enemies would come right around harvest time, partly because I believe they didn't really want to be uh, farmers and to plant. They thought it was just easier go conquer someone after they had harvested everything Go get the fruit of the harvest and bring it with you. It's exactly why in Judges 6.11, we find Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. You don't thresh wheat in the bottom of a hole. That's what the wine press basically was. But he did that to hide it from the Midianites that they wouldn't steal it from him. So God promises Israel, if they walk and keep and perform his statutes and covenants, he would cause their land to be fruitful and to be safe. So God promises first his provision, second his peace, 6 through 10. I will give peace in the land. You shall lie down and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts and the sword will not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put to flight ten thousand of your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably. I will make you fruitful, multiply you, and conform Confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest, clear out the old because of the new. There's are cleaning out the barns there for the new but now it's god's provision now it's god's peace god promises peace from their enemies from the beast if their enemies would dare to attack israel god said he would cause the enemies to flee that five israeli soldiers would chase a hundred enemy combatants while a hundred israeli soldiers would put to flight ten thousand of the enemy. And as a result, Israel's harvest would be safe from plunder and so fruitful that they'd have to clean out the barns of the old harvest before they brought in the new harvest. I've always loved the psalmist, and this is just one of several verses in the Psalms that Psalm 4 8 says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I've always loved these verses about dwelling in safety, uh, you know, um, 
maybe something we need to cling on to a little bit more in the world that we find ourselves in. It was not until a couple of years ago that I ever uh, got a couple of shotguns in my home and uh, brought everything into the bedroom at night to be close to us while we're sleeping just in case. And that happened with the riots in Kenosha and the threat against Antioch just uh, north of us here back when those riots were taking place. It was the first time I ever felt that I needed to have protection in the home. I don't feel as bad as a pastor in Ohio who in similar riots in his town said that he had uh, weapons at every window in his house. He was ready to go. But I like, I will lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I'd rather have the Lord watching my six than me having to worry about it. But we live in a different time right now where that is a concern. So in regard to God confirming his covenant with Israel, God later spoke through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 3, saying, Incline your ear and come to me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. So no generation. This is a quote that I pulled out of a commentary I've been reading. And it just stood out to me. The quote actually came from commentary in the book of Deuteronomy, but it's so applicable here. No generation can ever take the covenant of the Lord for granted. It must always make its own, make it its own by a fresh commitment. No generation can ever take the covenant of the Lord for granted. That generation must always make the covenant of the Lord its own by a fresh commitment. And so as God is giving out these blessings and cursings, we're only looking at the blessings right now. Um, this generation will die off one day that Moses is speaking these words to. And a new generation will rise up and they'll have to decide, are we going to keep, walk and do or are we going to turn our backs on the Lord? And that's true for us today. It's true for us um, as adults. We had to make that choice. It's true for our children who's coming up after us. And I can say true for my grandchildren who's coming up uh, two generations after Lily and I now. Each has to make that commitment, that choice in their lives. So there's some great uh, recent events that took place uh, in the last 50 years or less over in Israel of how where God said five will chase a hundred and a hundred will put 10,000 to flight. It made me think of the Yom Kippur War of October of 1973. So a few years ago, but in October, because things happen in Israel during October quite often. And the idea of this whole world, uh, this war in October, the Yom Kippur War was that their enemies attacked them on one of their most holiest days. They thought, we'll get them while they're not paying attention, and then we'll push them into the Mediterranean Sea and we'll be rid of them. Their enemies at that time in that war, there was a coalition of Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq, and other countries that helped the coalition uh, supported them with Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Libya, Algeria, Tunisia. Morocco, Sudan, Pakistan, Cuba, Uganda, and Russia. 
So talk about big odds against a small nation. Remember, the nation of Israel is about the size of Lake Michigan in size, or New Jersey, very small. And on the first day of the war in the Golan Heights, there were seven Israeli tanks where Syria attacked them with more than 450 tanks. Talk about the odds there. And they penetrated all the way to Tiberias on the first day, and yet they stalled out because the enemy was convinced that Israel had a trap awaiting them. So they stopped. They could have kept advancing, but God caused them to stop. Meanwhile, the Egyptians had crossed the Suez and breached a line in Israel that forced the Israeli Air Force um, to attack in that area. But their enemies, Israel's enemies, had Russian technology that caused over 125 of Israel's planes to be lost on both fronts, in the north and in the south. This all happened on the first day of the war. But on the second day, Israel began a counterattack in the Sinai. And when they started, their tanks were decimated. And yet, unbelievably, Israeli gradually began to turn the tide of the battle. First, they did so against the Syrians. Israelis not only pushed them off to their gains, but further backed them up to only 14 miles from Damascus. So they pushed deep into the Syria territory. And uh, there was, I heard a story, I think it's the same war, that there was with the tanks. Remember, they only started with seven. And they ended up up in the Golan Heights with only one. And the guy uh, with the one active tank snuck up a hill, shot, came down, went to another spot, snuck up, shot, came down, went over to another spot, snuck up and shot, and caused the Syrians to think that they had many more tanks than they actually had. They only had one at that time. And then Israel was able to get into Egypt and push them back um, in a great counterattack that caused Israelis to go past the Suez into the Egyptian territory. And there was nothing between them and Cairo. They were ready to take it. At that point, the Russians intervened, got Henry Kissinger here in America to negotiate uh, a peace or disengagement of the war. So God continues to fight for Israel. In Psalm 147:14, he makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. Also God's presence. And so we've seen that God had promised his uh, provision, his peace, and now his presence. 11 through 13, I will set my tabernacle among you. My soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and you will be my God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. And so God gave Israel dignity, made them a nation and a people. And he says, I have set my tabernacle among you. In a sense, he's saying, my presence is with you. That's what it meant when God tabernacled himself among them, that 
It was the place where Israel came to meet with God. And God promised them if they would walk, keep, and perform His statutes and commandments, that God would dwell with them and walk with them and be His people. It's always been the desire of the Lord for the creation of this world at the beginning. What does the Bible tell us in Genesis 3.8? That Adam and Eve, after they had sinned, but even prior to their sin, this was a habit that God had with Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve hid themselves because of the fall, because of their sin. But God always wanted to walk with the creation that he loves so much. But the fall separated us from God. In Exodus 29.5, God said, Exodus 29.45, God said, I will dwell among the children of Israel. I will be their God. Again, God with them. It's his desire with the nation of Israel. In John 1.14, the word of God tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ dwelling among his people. Ephesians 2, verses 20 through 22. I have built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That we're part of the temple of God, a dwelling place for God. And ultimately, it will be accomplished. Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He shall dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And so you can find this thread from Genesis to Revelation of God desiring to dwell with his people. But sin has always gotten in the way of that. And here we find, if Israel disobeys, verses 14 through 39. Now you know why I didn't want to take both chapters tonight. I thought this would just be like one of those quick chapters we'd run through. But I just kept getting into it. And that's fine. So we find the condition in verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments... And if you despise my statutes and if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant. So there's the condition. If you do not, if they fail to obey and observe God's commandments by despising his statutes, abhorring his judgments, failing to perform that Hebrew word to do that action of doing the work of God. By breaking their covenant with God, they break the covenant. God doesn't break the covenant. God promises, first of all, terror, as we'll see, and four cycles of sevenfold judgments against them. Now, I'll tell you up front, you can't count out 28 separate judgments in these sevenfold judgments. But four times, God says, I'm going to send a sevenfold judgment upon you. So you can't kind of, maybe in the Hebrew you could, but not in the English Bible for sure. Like the first point will get six, but not seven. Uh, You might have to do some scriptural acrobatics to make it work perfectly. But I'm basing it off of what God said. Four 
sevenfold judgments against them. But he begins with terror coming upon them. 16 and 17, disobedience leads to terror. I will also do this for you. I will appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which will consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. You shall sow your seed in vain. Your enemies shall eat it. I will not set my face... I will set my face against you. I will set my face against you and you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you and you shall flee when no one pursues you. So that's bad when you're running in fear when no one's chasing you. That's the terror. God was just going to cause them to be terrified and at times for no reason. At other times they would have reason when the enemy is overtaking them. And now... The blessings of their crops, that whatever they would yield, the enemies would come and take their harvest, defeat them in battle, and ultimately rule over them. In Psalm 44, verses 9 and 10, But if you cast us off and put us to shame, and you do not go out with our armies, you will make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. Israel understood, and they learned some pretty hard lessons, and we'll read about it in Deuteronomy and Numbers as we get into the last two books of the Pentateuch, that when they attempted to go to battle without God, they were always defeated. And here God is saying, if you do not walk in obedience with me, you do not obey, if you abhor my judgments, then I'm not going to be with you and I will cause terror to come upon you. So the first of the sevenfold judgments, verses 18 through 20, and after all this, if you do not obey, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make the heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, and your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall your trees of the land yield their fruit. So here I could list out at least six things, not seven judgments. But what God is doing here, think about this number seven, a number of completion. So God is saying, I am going to bring a perfect judgment against you. If you do not return to me because of the terror that comes upon your nation and the war and the captivity, if that's not enough, then I am going to bring a perfect judgment against you, the first cycle of the sevenfold judgments. Isaiah 2:12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon every proud and lofty, upon every thing lifted up, it shall be brought low. Psalm 25:9. Humble, the humble... He guides in justice. The humble, he teaches his way. The condemnation we find here, the punishment is because of their pride. God says, I'll, I'll take that pride away from you. God knows how to humble us. What David said in Psalm 25, 9, is that if we come to God in humility, then God will guide us in justice and he will teach us his ways. The second cycle of sevenfold judgment or a perfect judgment from God, verses 21 through 22. And then if you walk contrary to me, you're not willing to obey me, I will bring upon you seven times more plagues according to your sins. 
I will also send wild beasts among you, which will rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. So the second cycle of judgment is a result. It causes an invasion of the wild beast. It, beasts that come and kill their children, their, destroy their livestock, actually kills the people, reduces their population. Uh, this would happen when the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom and Assyria take the Israelis, what they didn't kill, and they distribute them throughout different nations and bring in five other nations into Israel. And uh, the other nations worship their own gods. And they sent word back to the king and said, you have to send the priest of Israel because the lions are coming out and killing us. The God of this land is killing us, causing the beast to attack us. And so this would happen not to the children of Israel, but no doubt it did as well. But it happened to the other nations that came into the northern kingdom at one point, which we'll read about when we get into First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Isaiah 59:12 says, "For our transgressions are multiplied before you, our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them." But thankfully, the Lord says in First John 1:8 that. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They were being judged according to their sins, the Lord said in verse 21. The third cycle of sevenfold judgment, 23 through 26. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, I will, and, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. So we might say a perfect judgment against them again. I will bring sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. You shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy and will cut off your supply of bread. Ten women shall break bread in one oven, shall bake bread in one oven, not break it. Bake bread in one oven. They shall bring back your bread by weight and you shall eat it and not be satisfied. So specifically, the Lord said, if you are not reformed, it's a Hebrew word that means if you're not chastened or disciplined, it, it means to teach with punishment. But if they're not convinced by the judgments that's already come upon them, then God would bring another round of judgment against them, causing scarcity to be so great that every 10 women would only need one oven to break, bake, I keep saying break, bake the amount of bread that they had available to them, and even that would not satisfy their hunger. Micah 6, 13 and 14. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat and not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but you shall not save them. And what, I, and what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. So we go to the fourth cycle, 
verses 27 through 35. So for the fourth and final seven-fold judgment, and the perfect judgment against them. And after all this, verse 27, if you do not obey me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chasten you seven times for your sin. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your instant altars, cast your carcasses in on the lifeless form of your altars or your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities to waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolations. Notice sanctuaries, plural. So these are pagan worship temples that rose up in their land, had nothing to do with the tabernacle or the temple of God. I will not smell your fragrance or your sweet aromas, no fellowship offering or peace offering with God or uh, burn offerings with God, that sweet-smelling aroma. Verse 32, I will bring the land to desolation. Your enemies who dwell in it will be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations, draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. And the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate. And you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest for the time that it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. We learned about this last week. Every seventh year was to be a Sabbath rest for the land. And every 50th year was to be um, a time of redemption for the people, a year of jubilee. And again, in the 49th and 50th year, the land was to rest. And yet there was a point where Israel did not allow the land to rest, either in the seventh years, every seventh year, they decided, we can't do this. We just can't let it lay fallow for a year. This is crazy. Or in the year of Jubilees, they decided there's no way we can let it lay rest for two years. But what they didn't know is that God was keeping count. And Jeremiah 19, 9 says, And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons, the flesh of their daughters, and everyone will eat the flesh of their friends in the siege and in desperation their enemies. Those who seek their lives will drive them to despair. And then again, Jeremiah 18, 16, to make their land desolate, a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. The enemies will be astounded by this. And then to fulfill the prophecies of Jeremiah, spoken that ultimately Judah would go into captivity for 70 years in order that the land would have its rest. And so... God was keeping track of the years that they did not let the land rest. And God said, the land will have its rest. You will be in captivity for 70 years. So two different Sabbaths rest at play here, the regular Sabbath of the seventh year and also the year of Jubilee that took place every 50th year. Jeremiah 34:17, And the Lord said, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and every one to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, 
to pestilence, to famine, I will deliver you, to trouble among the kingdoms of the earth. God promised captivity because of their disobedience. Jeremiah 25, 11. And this whole land shall be desolate and astonishment. These nations shall serve kings of Babylon for 70 years. The land would have its rest. So the unrepentance, they would also know faintness and fear. They began with terror, faintness and fear. Now in verses 36 through 39, it's a long chapter. Now you know why I didn't take the next chapter as well. And for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the land of their enemies. A sound of a shaking leaf will cause them to flee. Oh, that just brought back memories of camping with the boys at the church once when they was supposedly camping by a satanic graveyard where people came out and did rituals. At least that's what they were telling us before we went to sleep that night. And then it stormed really bad. And as I was laying there wide awake, I kept hearing this crunching of the leaves to eventually discover that my sleeping bag was on top of these dry leaves that was making that crunchy sound. But I was afraid for a little while. I was afraid as if I was fleeing from the sword, shaking leaves, but there was nothing there. Anyways, picking up in verse 37, they shall flee as though they're fleeing from a sword. They shall fall when no one pursues them. Verse 37, they shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword. When no one pursues them, you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations. The land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquities in the enemy's lands. Also in their father's iniquities, which are in them, they shall waste away. So God, after promising these terror, began with terror, four cycles of sevenfold judgments. And now any survivors that they would know faintness and fear. We know that the Assyrians took the northern kingdom into captivity. Historically, it is recorded that between the years 745 and 612 BC that the Assyrians moved as much as four and a half million people around. The Assyrians would conquer an area. They would totally remove the people and reestablish the area with different nations. They were trying to strip um, any kind of national pride from the people. In fact, Sennacherib, who is named in the Bible, it is said that he himself might have displaced almost a half a million people. And he even wrote concerning Jerusalem when he besieged Jerusalem. He did not have victory there. But in his records, it says in Hezekiah, king of Judah, so this is from the king of Syria and historical records found through them connecting it to the Bible. Hezekiah, king of Judah, who did not submit to my yoke, him I shut up in Jerusalem in his royal city like a caged bird. Earthworks I threw up against him and anyone coming out of his gate, 
I made pay for his crime, his city which I had plundered, I had cut off from his land. So we know that this took place and that people had faintness and fear. It can have, faintness and fear, you know, can have a disastrous effect upon the nation. All you have to do is talk about some kind of pandemic and have people kind of give in to fear in such a way that we're willing to give up so many freedoms that we discover later on that we really blew it <laughs> by giving up so much freedom over the last few years. So we've lived through this a little bit ourselves as a nation. But remember, Israel was under, under a covenant with God. We have no such covenant. If Israel repents and turns back to God, so now we're going to finish it out, verses 40 through 46. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, if they, with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I have also walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet, for all that, uh, they went through the terror, the seven, four sevenfold judgments, the faintness and the fear. And God says, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and the judgments and the laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Sinai by the hand of Moses. So while in captivity, if Israel confesses their sins and confesses the sin of their fathers, they humble themselves before the Lord. God promises to renew the covenant of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham to bring them back to the land, but only after the land enjoys its Sabbaths. A great example of this prayer is Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, only the beginning of his prayer, he has this type of confession. And we read the book of Daniel, we don't find that Daniel did anything wrong. We might say that he had nothing to confess, and yet this is how he prayed. O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Daniel prayed the type of prayer that God said, if this nation who has fallen away from me, taken into captivity, if they had humbled themselves, remember and confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, Daniel prayed that very same type of prayer to the Lord God there in Daniel chapter 9. So this chapter is a great prophetic picture of the nation of Israel. 
And they had many seasons of blessings, but they also turned away from the Lord. And in seasons of apostasy, it resulted in God's judgment coming against them. We'll see that in the book of Judges and the many different cycles that they go through there. Ultimately, the nation of Israel would be led into captivity. And yet, even in captivity, God had his remnant. Today, God still has his remnant of true believers. A remnant speaks about those who stay faithful to God and his son, Jesus Christ, even when the rest of the nation or the world might turn their backs on him. It also implies that a remnant becomes that spiritual seed by which it can blossom for a new generation of faith to be uh, come up in believers' lives. It's one of my prayers for this church is that we would prepare this place for the next generation of worshipers who would worship here. I don't know how long we have until the Lord takes us home, but I do want to see God do a work in our lives and in our hearts. And those works always begin with humility. When we turn our hearts toward God in humility, we'll find that the Lord will do great things for his people. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us tonight. And I pray, Father, that you would bless this church, bless our churches, Lord, two churches here in the building represented here tonight and other churches, Lord, through radio and through the video stream being represented tonight, those who are listening and watching. So, Lord, I extend this prayer to all the churches of the people who belong to different fellowships. Lord, work in our midst. Lord, we live in a land that has largely turned its back on you. And I fear, Lord, that we are experiencing judgment. Lord, there have been those terrified moments. There have been times, Lord, where we perhaps have been filled with fear and faint-hearted. But Lord, help us to humble ourselves. Your people, and what does your word say? If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves, Lord, let us be such a people, would humble ourselves before you, that we might see you do great things in us and through us. We pray this night in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. And I do pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.